I love milk. Like when I'm at home, my mom has to buy an extra gallon of milk just because she knows I go through it so fast. Welcome to A Brown Girl and a White Girl, the podcast about surviving graduate school and thriving outside of it. I'm Diana, your resident brown girl. And I'm Mary, your resident white girl. And on today's show, we have Jana Hader. Jana is an incoming fifth-year PhD candidate in the UCSB History Department with a master's degree in South Asian Studies from the University of Washington. Jana's research specifically looks at transnational anti-colonial activism and the use of immigration restrictions and denaturalization to clarify U.S. racial construction in the early 20th century. As such, she lives in the fields of U.S. legal history, modern South Asian history, and Asian American studies. Welcome to the show, Jana. Hi, how are you? Good. How about you? Also good. Thank you for asking. Mary is on her way. She had to restart her computer because Zoom froze her computer. Great. I love so that. She's currently rebooting. So. <laughs> Hello. We're here. Hello. How's it going? I'm sure you already answered that question, but now I want to know. <laughs> no, I'm good. It's it's going. I'm, you know, staring down the start of fall quarter, as as are we all. And it's like, oh, boy. Are you teaching in the fall? Or yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm TAing. And I'm going to try really hard not to, like, put my whole back into it because it is dissertation writing time now. But we'll see. <laughs> Okay, so to kind of get us started, if you can explain to us a little bit about kind of what you study and kind of how you got into that. Yeah, so my name is Jenna Heather, and I am going into my fifth year in the history department at UC Santa Barbara. I have what I call this like cocktail party level of ways of talking about my dissertation. You start with like the one liner and then if people are more interested then you go like a level down sort of thing. So, so bear with me. In like the 1900s, 1910s, the landscape of organized labor in the Pacific Northwest of the US and British Columbia was a very white space. A lot of labor unions existed to stop people of color from entering the industries and quote, taking their jobs, unquote. So around this time, South Asian young men were starting to come over from what was at the time British India and try to work in the extractive labor industries, particularly lumber. And they had a hard time getting work because the white labor unions had them frozen out. So this group of young South Asian men organized themselves into this thing that they at first called the Hindustani Association. It has two goals together. Goal number one is be a labor union for South Asian workers in, in lumber. Goal number two is overthrow the British Empire in India because we love multitasking. So that's in 1911 and 1913. They changed the name to the Ghadar Party. Ghadar is an Urdu Persianate word that means mutiny because they're naming themselves after the 1857 Sepoy Mutiny, um, which was the last really serious attempt to overthrow British rule in, in India. The plan that this organization has, like their, you know, their long-term goals, is that on the 60th anniversary of the Sepoy Mutiny in 1917, they're going to take up arms, they're going to go back to India, and they are going to just fight it out. They're going to go to war against the British colonial infrastructure in India. 
But then World War One happens. During the war, the British withdraw a lot of their troops from British India and move them over to Godayan trenches. Mm-hmm. So the Gadar party is like, great, this is our moment. This is our time to shine. So they accelerate everything by a couple of years. This collective gathers in San Francisco and they go back to Kolkata and they so they land and they had put all these propaganda pieces out that were like fellow Indians in India take up arms with us. And then people don't because they're like, I'm doing my subsistence farming and this does not seem well organized. I'm going to sit this one out. So it doesn't work. Spoilers. Everybody is arrested. So then there's three criminal trials. The first of which takes place in Lahore. It's the British Raj that has them on trial for treason. Everybody is convicted and they are sentenced to either death by hanging or transportation for life, which is exiled to a prison colony. So that's Lahore. That's 1915. The next trial is in San Francisco in 1917. There was a there's a law on the book. It's a U.S. Criminal Code, uh, Section 13, which says that you cannot conspire to go to war against an ally of the United States where that ally is at war currently. So even though the United States had at the time not yet entered World War One, Britain was an ally of the US. And that mm. so that is what the Gutter Party is charged under. Yeah. Also, the German consulate had given them a ton of support, because it is good for the German Empire if Britain loses its biggest colony, right? Yeah. So um, Gutter Party members and German consular officers are all on trial together, over two dozen people on trial, there's like eight or nine different lawyers, they'd switch out periodically. It's a mess. So this trial lasts for six months. It starts in November 1917. It goes until April 1918. In mid-April 1918, and I want to take a moment here to highlight the fact that leftist men have always been the same. (laughs) (laughs) It starts to become evident that factions have formed amongst the defendants as to which faction knows best how to do a revolution. This heightens to the point that the leader of faction A sneaks a gun into the courtroom and in court murders the leader of faction B. Men have not changed. It they really is. And <laughs> then, Put them in charge. And then the shooter himself is then immediately shot and killed by the bailiff. Okay. Um, sure. So the jury is out of the room at this point because they're about to like go to lunch, but everyone else is still in the room and nobody moves for a mistrial. And I'm not quite sure why my best guess is that they, everyone is tired having been there for six months and they're like, let's just get this one over with. Mm -hmm. So um, three days after that, the jury retires to deliberate. Four days later, the jury comes back with like just all guilty verdicts except for one of the white American guys who financed one of the boats. That guy is not guilty. Everyone else. Of course not. Well, when you can finance a boat. (laughs) And then the Chicago trial happens third, but it's much more subdued because now the two biggest conspirators are both dead. So it's very much like, well, we've done this twice already. And then they turn to the all white jury of Chicago people and they're like, conviction, please. And then they do. And they get turned into these martyrs, right? Because of course they do. And that mm-hmm. becomes the like the symbol of what it takes to organize for the overthrow of the British Empire while mm-hmm. you're in diaspora, specifically in the United States. So what I find so interesting about all of this is like creating an Indian nationalism outside of India. Like, what is that? What does it look like? What does that tell us about the way that race is happening in the United yeah. States? Question mark. That was a lot. I hope that answered your questions. That's super interesting. I had a great time. Yeah. You have some really specific research interests. And Mm -hmm. so I kind of want to know a little bit about like what got you interested in that and how did you end up 
in grad school? Like what made you realize like, hey, this is what I want to study and I need to go to grad school for that. Yeah, it's been a weird, weird road. When I when I started college when I was 17, I really thought that I wanted to be an FBI agent. Like that was my big goal. So when I was applying to colleges, I was looking for colleges where I could get a degree in criminal justice, which Uh is not like actually the most common undergrad major in the history of the world. And one of the places I found uh, is Seattle University, which is this like 8,000 person like Jesuit school. Um, Excellent. The Catholics. The Catholics, right? And as someone with a Muslim father and a Lutheran mother, it just, it made a lot of sense. No, but what wound up happening was they gave me about a half ride in scholarship money. And I was like, great, I'm gonna take this. So I go and I enroll in the criminal justice major and I'm like, this is great. But then I took like one political science class and learned like one or two things about cops. And I was like, oh, is this bad? Also, like, I think the summer between my first and second years of undergrad, Trayvon Martin died. And then the summer between my junior and senior years, Mike Brown died. So at the same time that I'm coming to this, like, theoretical understanding about, like, police brutality and racial capitalism and all these other stuff, the Black Lives Matter movement is beginning. And I eventually added a political science major and the political science faculty were involved in counter-organizing. Down the street from our campus, King County wanted to expand the juvenile detention center and the faculty would constantly, you know, reach out to some students. Do you want to come to a community organizing meeting? And that was like my first real experience with community organizing was protesting what we came to call the kid cage. And I decided somewhere along the way that the thing for me to do was to become a lawyer, like to become this this kind of advocate that could, you know, enter this system and work within it. One of the schools that I applied to beat out any financial aid offer that I got anywhere else. So I went and I figured like a legal education is a legal education. I can make this work. It's a full ride. Um, and then I couldn't. Um, I'm not going to go into like a ton of detail because I don't like want to get sued or anything, but this is the only yeah. time in my life that I've ever been bullied for being gay was at this law school. Oh. Um, so I left at the end of my first year and it I dropped out and it was terrifying for me, a former gifted kid. It was the first yeah. time I ever felt myself like failing at something or quitting yeah. something. So there I am, 23, full of an existential crisis, moved back to Seattle because that was where all my friends were, worked in a nonprofit for a year. And during that year, I came to terms with the fact that like I wanted to be in grad school but I was also worried because in my brain I had already you know quote unquote failed at grad school once so rather than applying to PhDs I applied to terminal master's degrees in that cycle and I got into the South Asian studies program at the University of Washington and while I was there in winter quarter of my first year I took a critical geography studies grad seminar taught by this professor named Megan Yabara and it absolutely changed my life because it was like here's how people move across spaces. Here's how they encounter the legal infrastructures of borders here, what immigration law does to them. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This This is my thing. So I started like going around and talking to various faculty members and like, this is what I'm interested in. What should I be reading? And a faculty member recommended me the book Echoes of Mutiny by a woman named Seema Sohi. That book is about the Gutter Party, but it is not a legal history. Um, it's very much like a more of a social history. It studies like their activism, their their movement through community organizing. But as I'm reading this book, I'm looking at the fact that federal law enforcement is starting to embed agents in there to spy on them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is COINTELPRO. This is a solid, you know, 40 years before COINTELPRO is a thing. But this is COINTELPRO. And that is what kind of got me going. Can you 
explain what COINTELPRO is? Yes, 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 yes. Sorry. So within the FBI, the program that is developed is counterintelligence program, I believe is the full term for it. And it gets shortened to COINTELPRO. In the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, when the long civil rights movement in the US is starting to do its thing, um, J. Edgar Hoover, who's like the first director of the FBI and has the job for like 30 years, designates movement groups like the Black Panthers as the biggest threat to national security the world has ever seen. And it's funny because this is the first time that the FBI starts hiring agents of color and they hire the agents of color so that they can go in and spy on the Black Panther Party. Think of J. Edgar Hoover and wiretapping, but... Yeah, there was that too. (laughs) But like, I don't know if if y'all have ever seen the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, but it involves not an FBI agent, but um, like a civilian like informant who they Mm -hmm. place in there. If Mary has her, has her thinking face on, I feel like she's going to ask something. No, I'm just, I'm sitting oh, okay. here and thinking of more like, I love that what you're researching is like build a story. Yeah. And I like the research that I do and like, it doesn't really build a story. And so like when you're explaining your research, I was like, wow, that's really cool. And also like your research, it is a story. And I was, I don't know, I was very engaged. Well, thank you first. I think that's the thing that I love about history is the element of storytelling yeah. that you get. So going back to the whole, like the whole, there's been a murder situation. I've known about this trial in particular for, you know, a while now, like a couple of years now, but I only found out about the murders this past summer in, in June, I was on this really long research trip. And my first stop was at the national archives in Seattle. And um, one of the record sets that I pulled had letters like correspondence between the U S attorney in Seattle and the U S attorney in San Francisco. And there's one letter where the San Francisco U S attorney basically says, I can't help you with your problem right now. Two of my defendants were just killed in court. And I, and that I was like, what, what, (laughs) wait, what? And so I'm just sitting there at my little research table in this dark wood paneled office (laughs) in the National Archives in Seattle. And it's like, what do you mean there's been a murder? Um, It was this weird feeling because it's like, like, you know, you you have your favorite novels and you like read them over and over again. And the first time you read a novel that you really love, you get so invested in the characters. And then when they die, you're like, oh, this feels like a person I know that died. And like, It's interesting because my historical actors, like these guys would have been dead for decades regardless. But to me, they just died was kind of how it felt. And it's like, oh, this is so, this is so strange. And I think that like we historians like in this discipline can have a tendency to kind of overdo it. Like, I think that we often have a lot to learn from our like fellow social science disciplines. And like, sometimes you need to pull it back, right? Yeah. You have what the archive tells you. But and that doesn't mean you get to speak for people. You get to interpret what they have said. That's a thing that I think it can be really easy for us to lose the plot on because people are dead. Like our interlocutors are dead. Like I'm not accountable Mm -hmm. to an IRB or anything like that. And I don't know, maybe we should be. I had never thought about that. The fact that you don't have to file an IRB for your research. And to be clear, like my colleagues who do oral histories, they do. But like, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I feel like for us in our discipline, like the IRB is kind of the thing that like keeps the shady researchers accountable. Yeah. God, that's crazy. I've never thought about like the fact that people who do this kind of work and who don't have to file IRBs, like if they go into it with this idea that they want to tell a particular story and they are going to make it happen no matter what's already on Mm -hmm. record, that there's nothing kind of to hold them accountable besides the peers, right? I'm thinking of that too, of like, what is the accountability measure? Yeah. Because like when we 
when we do qualitative coding for our stuff, like you have to do IRB, okay. But like you bounce your your coding or like your findings off of other people. Yeah. Do you have peer checking or like? Um, not until much later in the process. Um, Once you submit for publication and the thing goes out for peer review. But like, you know, at the grad school level, it's different. Like your committee is as involved as you want your committee to be involved and I don't know it's if it's the fact that I was I'm like a former almost lawyer but I want eyes on my stuff a lot like I want to know that the things that I'm saying are making sense that the things that I'm saying are not overreach but once you're like out there in the universe my understanding is that you don't actually need to show your work to anyone before you submit it for publication I don't know anyone who does not voluntarily show their friends and their writing groups and their communities their work. But I don't know that there's an actual accountability system in place. I don't think there is. With journal articles, there's, of course, less, fewer people see the thing before it is in print than than for a full book manuscript. But yeah, it's it, it's it's a weakness of the discipline, I think, that we're like, oh, well, if the interlocutors are dead, then you're fine. God, that's so interesting. I'd never thought about... Like you meet other graduate students from other disciplines, but and you like, okay, you do research, but you never mm-hmm. like think about what that means mm-hmm, in terms mm-hmm. of the process, right? Like the process of how you approach your research, how you approach your interviews or your data sets and all of that. So that's, that's fascinating to me. Because yeah, like you said, like for us, like I, I interview people who are very much still alive. And so you yeah. interview someone and you give them their transcripts and you ask like, hey, are you okay with what you said? And mm-hmm. you write something up and you send it to them. And hey, are you portrayed in the way that you want to be portrayed? And you have all these systems in place. And like what Mary said, you have other people that are coding with you to double check you that your biases aren't coming into your work in any way. And so it's so interesting imagining not having kind of that in place. Yeah, it also allows for like cultures, I think, to become entrenched with like the with senior academics in particular, because like it is a senior academic who is going to read your thing for peer review. Yeah. And if if your publication piece aligns with this person's bias, politics, what they're used to in the field, it's going to get accepted for publication. But if you're trying to do something else, the article might not be accepted for publication Mm -hmm. so that it shapes the epistemology as well. Like, what are we even allowed to know? And who's allowed to bring that knowledge forward to? Because I think in our field, like you're starting to get more diverse perspective and voices. And mm-hmm. there's often a lot of pushback on that because of who the senior researchers, educators are and what they look like and what their experiences have been like and how long they've been outside of educational spaces and stuck into the ivory tower, right? And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just interesting how different fields advance and what place they are in there infancy adulthood whatever you want to call it you transitioned a little bit Mm -hmm. I'm interested you had two previous grad experiences so you were Mm -hmm. in law school for a little bit you did a master's how did that impact what you expected your PhD was going to be like like what expectations did you have going in and yeah have they been met or not met (laughs) I think that also a lot of this is influenced by the fact that I did not really have access to mental health care until I started at UCSB. Um, like I didn't have insurance that would get me into therapy until I started here. I started therapy October of my first year. 
And then pretty immediately, my therapist was like, hey, bestie, I'm gonna refer you to a psychiatrist. Let's get you on some brain drugs. She hates that I call them brain drugs, but that's what they are. Um, (laughs) So I think that the way that like my anxiety and my depression manifested, you know, when I was younger was a lot of like, if you run fast enough, the depression won't catch you. And that's, I think, why I was like, I'm going to take the LSAT at age 20. I'm going to go to law school right away. I was by at least five years, the youngest person in my law school cohort. And I think that when I started having a bad time in law school, it made me panic because school had always been the place where I found my validation. It's like, oh, here's this visible metric of a grade that proves that I'm a good person. You know what I mean? And then I suddenly didn't have that. Leaving was terrifying. I'm glad that I did it. I was so scared at the time. And my master's degree, I think it took a while for me to realize that I actually didn't have anything to prove because I went in with this attitude that like I already failed at this once I have to be the smartest person Mm. in the room to like prove that I deserve to be here Um, and it just didn't register for me that I was fully two states away from where I dropped out of law school none of these people knew me in law school no one Mm. knew I would I had dropped out unless I told them but that definitely influenced like the way that I moved through classroom spaces it's a lot of like I have something to prove and now that's everybody's problem. I don't know. I calmed down a little bit, like once I got used to the space, but still I was probably insufferable. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then when I entered this PhD program, I think that I had, I was doing a lot better at managing my expectations for myself than I was either in entering law school or entering the MA. Cause I was like, I'm going to enter law school and it's, it's going to be great. I'm going to, you know, make all these legal arguments. It's going to be fantastic. And then it was not that at all. And then I entered my master's degree and I had really high expectations in the other way. I was like, this is going to suck unless I do everything in my power to be the smartest girl God ever put on earth. And then I entered this program and it's like, okay, at this point, I had a pretty good handle on where my talents were and had a pretty good handle on where I wanted to go with the project because like, yeah, it was my first year of the PhD, but it was also technically my third year of like the academic grad school experience. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to get myself in therapy. I'm going to mitigate my own expectations and then we'll go from there. And that lasted a little bit. And then there was like a wildcat strike in a pandemic. So it it, like didn't last, but I tried. Who who could have predicted? (laughs) Yeah. I swear, whenever you just enter graduate school, I feel like Mary and I have said this before, but it's like they need to give you your ID card and your ther- your appointment with your therapist like the same day. Oh, yeah. Because like Absolutely. I also started therapy my first year of, of my grad program and there was personal stuff going on. Like I had a family member that passed away mm-hmm. and COVID happened and I was alone and I was also in a grad program. Also similar to you, you kind of I feel like a lot of people who are in grad school are like the rock stars all their life like you're that kid who did really good in school or you did really bad because you were bored and you find it easy and (laughs) other people just didn't understand you Mm -hmm. and then you go to undergrad and you're a rock star there because you're doing everything right because you're Mm -hmm. so tapped into that grind mentality of like I need to be this for whatever reason, because I'm trying to prove my parents sacrifices were worth it because I'm trying to prove this or this or that and then you get to grad school and you realize that is not fucking sustainable. And so like, I feel like a lot of people that I've talked to kind of come to grad school and have this point of like, holy shit, what do I do right now that I know that I'm not a rock star anymore that like, Mm -hmm. 
this doesn't but everybody else in this room is also the smartest yeah, person. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it like triggers like a very big existential crisis of like, holy shit. And a lot of it, it drives us to therapy, right? Because it's, you need help and tools to then navigate of, okay, well then how do I yeah. approach this space? How do I behave in this space? How do I take care of myself? I also yeah. think like once, like you're in grad school and you're you're getting older and I've been feeling this more with my like where you're on Instagram or you're you know you're seeing your friends who didn't go to grad school and they are progressing in their life and so it also life is a comparison game and uh, we're all in therapy so you know you can work (laughs) that out next week but (laughs) like it's having kind of the external mile markers yeah at least for me remind me like okay I am an adult and I don't have to work all the time. Yeah. Like every other adult that I know that is not in a doctoral program has time for themselves, has reads a, a book for fun, yeah. has weekends, has hobbies. And so, yes, well, I understand there's a certain level of sacrifice that comes with getting a professional degree just for the sake of like, I have to graduate and I don't want to be in school forever. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the everything is sacrificed. I find myself doing that too a lot, but more so with like family. But it it is that idea of like, I think a lot of time we become so, I don't want to say obsessed, but for lack of a better (laughs) word, obsessed with your department milestones, with your program milestones that you forget that, oh shit, I'm also a person. And I also have like personal milestones that I want to accomplish, but that are being pushed to the back because I'm not in a space where my institution is also prioritizing those personal milestones for me, right? Because mm-hmm. these institutions weren't built for one women, specifically women of color. Yeah. So like those aren't going to be at any point prioritized. And so it's up to you to find that balance, like Mary said, but it's like, it's hard doing that when you are, for lack of a better word, in the trenches, right? Yeah. It's hard to do that when you have things just coming at you 10 times. And so Okay, so here's my question then. Why make the investment mm-hmm. to go to grad school? Yeah, I'm going to start with a long-winded anecdote, and then I'm going to answer your question. Love it. So summer 2020, things were happening. There was a pandemic. There was not a vaccine. There was also a second round of Black Lives Matter uprisings mm-hmm. happening. And I was here, and I was not with the communities that I'd been part of in Seattle. And like I was friends with or vaguely knew a lot of the people taking street actions in Seattle. I don't know if y'all remember hearing about the Capitol Hill autonomous zone, but like I I knew a lot of the folks who were part of setting that up. And um, then there was a day where a group of activists were linking arms to block a roadway in protest. And some guy in one of those like big, you know, pickup trucks that have grills that are taller than than I am, um, drove into the line and um, killed one of the protesters and injured another. The person who died, their name was Summer. Um, I didn't know them. Like we weren't friends. I don't want to be like, like insert myself into their story. But like, I, I certainly knew of them. I had seen them around, like I had shared space with them. And now they were dead. And, and I was in fucking my San Clemente apartment, like my, you know, grad student housing apartment, like doing nothing. And I made my advisor get on Zoom with me. I was fully crying. And I and I was like, what is the point of being here? Like, why are we bothering? 
And the answer that I got from her works for me better on some days than on others. But the answer was because someone has to write it down. Someone has to document and interpret and make us understand and create more people who know the things that we know and are co-creating tools to change them. And I think that's why. I think that's why we're here. I'm applying it to like social science, like Mm -hmm. our, like not living social science. What do you call it? Like it's not living, but like what's opposite of it? Because history is dead people. So the joke I tell my students is if they're dead, it's history. If they're alive, it's politics. So I don't know. Great. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I'm thinking like of of applying the, the somebody's got to write it down. And I feel like I've used that on myself. Yeah. yeah. Of yeah. just like some somebody needs to put it in the academy. Yeah. The community knows. Mm-hmm. But it's got to get from the community to the academy to give it that institutional power. It needs if to we're be, gonna play in the system. It needs to be made legible to people with institutional power, I think. Yeah. Like given to them in a language that they are willing to understand and take seriously. So that a combination of that and the pressure that they're getting from grassroots organizations pushes them. Yeah. Yeah. The way I think I've always thought about, and it's interesting that we've all kind of thought about the same thing, but just in different ways has been Mm -hmm. like, there's me pulling from my humanities, but um, I've thought about it in terms of stories. Like if I don't tell these stories and no one else is going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the part that gets me through it at least or my investments like fuck if I'm not here to tell and I'm also like I'm a cancer so I also like to pull out the heartstrings because I know that that's what gets people it's like right if I can make you cry I've got (laughs) you I have got you and so I think that's where I'm like if I can make some cold-hearted asshole in a suit cry or feel some sort of emotion after listening to this person's story Mm -hmm. and if I can write it in that way then that's you have some buy-in at that point. And that's how you start doing that. So I'm assuming people have humanity and I'm trying to appeal to that humanity through stories. <laughs> but, and that, but that, that's it. It's like, okay, well. I just watched Mary shake dog. her head. And I'm- yeah. <laughs> she's just like, I know that's she's the like. Difference. That's Viana. the difference. Viana is a, she pulls out the heartstrings and I'm like, and now nah, it's all about profit. <laughs> we went back to the like desperate sad stuff and I'm like okay <laughs> what do we end on here <laughs> like well yeah. that's what we can end on so we talked about a lot of and we ended on a desperate sad note so <laughs> let's end on a happy note so yeah. with all the shitty stuff going on in the world with all the stressful stuff going on in your life in terms of school and things Hang like on. that pause can you walk me through the process of doing archival research from yeah. like I need to go to an archive to I've written a paper Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the United States government does a lot of things really badly, but they really went off when they structured the archive system. So like Is it the Library of Congress? Did they No, so the Library of Congress is different than than the National Archives in reasons that don't really matter. But um the biggest difference, I guess, is there's only one location for the Library of Congress. The National Archives, the central location 
is in Washington, D.C., if you've seen National Treasure. Yeah. That um, it's where Nick Cage stole the Declaration of Independence. But the actual main repository for federally generated records is not in D.C. It's in College Park, Maryland, because that's where the land is cheaper. And that tends to be a pattern, is that the big National yeah. Archives facilities are where the land was cheaper. So um, in spring, when I'm in absentia and I'm gonna, when I say I'm going to go pull a whole bunch of Bureau of Naturalization records, I'm going to College Park. I'm not going to D.C., Mm -hmm. Um, just because that's where all the stuff is. But then the different regional facilities, so like the National Archives in Seattle, for example, take federal documents generated in Washington, Oregon, Alaska, and Idaho, and they all just like go there. Like that's their regional location. The Riverside National Archives pull Southern California, Clark County, Nevada, and then the border crossing at Nogales um, Mm. in Arizona. So those are all pulled together. And then San Francisco, which is actually in San Bruno, but we don't have to talk about it, um, (laughs) is Hawaii and NorCal and like, I don't know, the other states that border Northern California. But then also, and I know this because I do legal stuff, like like Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals cases also are centralized there. And the way you get in, honestly, is you email and you're like, hello, it is I, a human person. I have looked at your online finding aids. I would like to come in and look at these materials. May I please do that? And then they're like, yes, here is your appointment. Show up on this day, do our little online training slash background check that feels more like a BuzzFeed quiz than anything else. And then you show up and you're like, hello, it is me. And they're like, do you have a research card yet? And if you say no, because it expired during the pandemic, they're like, great, here's your new one. It's good for a year. And you're like, thank you. And then they walk you into the research room and they're like, here's the cart with all of your boxes on them. So they pull them before you get there. They pull them before you get there. Yeah. But while you're there, you can be like, oh, it has occurred to me that I need this other thing. Will you please go get it for me? And they are like, yes. And that's what it's like to do archival research in the U.S. But like I have friends who work in like Egypt or whatever, and it takes them three years and multiple letters of rec and like a State Department like clearance to like get into the Egyptian National Archives. Again, the U.S. government does a lot wrong, but they really went off when they came up with the archives. This is a bit of a follow-up to Mary's follow-ups but what does your guys's funding look like because if you need money to (laughs) travel and based on that laugh be there to look because I'm imagining you're depending on how much you pull you're in the archives for a fucking while and yeah if you have to live somewhere else where do you like how does your funding look like to finance all of that so it is actually I don't want to say it's easier but it's less logistically complicated to need to leave the U.S. because like I am not eligible for the Fulbright Fellowship, for example, Mm. um, because I don't need to leave the country for long enough. And like, that's fine. Like folks who who need to go to Russia should have access to that money. But it's almost all external. At least if you're at a public school, it's almost all external. This history department guarantees us funding for one quarter. But that guaranteed funding for one quarter, it is $8,000. So I'm going to need to supplement that. Yeah. So it's a lot of like you apply for these little bitty like $10,000, $1,500, $2,000 awards and you stack them up like they're kids in a trench coat because like there's very few big ones. Like the Ford Foundation is one yeah. of the biggest one and that one is being closed. Like, so it's it's a lot of like cobbling stuff together, honestly. And it sucks. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah. not fun. But that is why I am honestly pretty lucky that most of the 
National Archives facilities are in like bumfuck nowhere cities. But like in November, I'm going to Chicago to the National Archives in Chicago. And I'm only going for a week because that is all I can afford. So I'm going to have to work very, very quickly while I'm there. And then I'm going during one of the weeks where like there's a federal holiday on Friday because my sections are on Friday. So I don't need to worry about canceling them. And you just kind of like cobble stuff together and Mm. you make it work that way. This might be a dumb question as someone who doesn't do this, but like when you're only there for so long and you're trying to get through so much paper, like I'm assuming you can't just like ask for scans of something and take that with you. Like there has to be a reason why you have to stay there for that long, right? I'm assuming they don't have digital records of any of the stuff, which is why you have to do that, right? 0.3% of the U.S. National Archives has been digitized. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. You can ask them to scan stuff for you, but it Uh is 80 cents, 80 cents a page. Oh, um, so it it adds it's, up. Yeah, it's cheaper so it, just to go. And it's try often to, cheaper like, yeah. to go use the little scanner app on your phone and like take your little PDFs and then and then go home. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I prefer being there anyway, because then I can be like, oh, this is interesting. You turn to the archivist and you're like, can I get more? What, can, yeah. yeah. What's the deal with that? And can yeah. I follow up on this? This is all fascinating to me. It's so different from what <laughs> like my art world. It's my archives like, are walking around on a college campus. <laughs> it's also like no one ever told me how to do it. Oh, God, that's so interesting. So you just like, this is me and memory talk about this, but I feel like, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but a lot of time in your programs, the people you learn more from are your fucking peers. Like Absolutely. they're the ones telling you what to Absolutely. do and when to do it. And you're like, great, thank you. But also you're not getting paid for this shit. So like, what the fuck are we Mm -hmm. doing here? Mm -hmm. Oh, my TA, my section syllabus is absolutely a Frankenstein of many TAs who came before me. Mm -hmm. Like my prospectus, I knew how to structure it because I looked at my friend's prospectuses, prospecti, whatever. Like, yeah. And it's like, that shit sucks. We should all get paid more money if we're going to be doing this labor for each other. Yeah. Yeah. What is your support network? Ooh. Um, So my best friend has been my best friend for almost 12 years now. We met during orientation for undergrad. Cute. Yeah, I was a bridesmaid in her wedding this past October. Um, You guys are lifers. Yeah, her name is Sula. Um, And so she's, you know, she's my girl. She's my ride or die. Um, She's a, she's an April Taurus and I'm an April Aries. So we have very much like, yeah, you go beat them up and I will like wave a fun little supportive flag while you do it. Like I will... (laughs) Like we have a deal that it's like, I'll help you hide a body, but I will not cover up for you if you cheat on your partner. Like that, like those are the rules. So, so her and like my, my community of friends in, in Seattle. And I feel very lucky to like have a good group of non-grad school friends. I have some great friends in grad school, but it's, it's really good. I think like I got my first article published um, a couple months ago, which was very cool, but it was also one of my non-grad school friends was like, if I buy this money from the, if I buy this article from the journal, will any of the money actually go to you? And I was like, lol, lol. (laughs) So what I love about all of them so much is that it's good to have such a reality check of like these like exploitative systems of labor inherent to grad school are not like they, they can and should be questioned, I think. But I also feel like coming out of strike, I have this really 
beautiful circle of friends, both at UC Santa Barbara and across the UC more broadly that I didn't have before. It's like this, this is the thing that brought us together, even though the strike was like so painful and so difficult. Um, it's like now I have all these people in my life that I didn't have before. And, and I'm really, really grateful for that. And um, I'm like, I'm a big believer in found family, I think yeah. is, is what I have t- like taken away from, from all of this. So, and also I'd like to give a big shout out to duloxetine, which is the generic name for Cymbalta, which is my antidepressant. Oh um, yeah. Yay. An part of the support network. <laughs> yeah. We are going to transition to it and ask you to further commit to our bit as if we haven't already asked you to do that by participating. I, in I love a good bit. I'm so in. I'm uh, so we have a little surprise question for you to answer, no preparation required, and you won't be flying solo. So if you choose to answer it, Mary and I will also answer it. <laughs> but you do have some wiggle room. We can give you a question. If you don't like it or you don't want to answer it, you can pass it. We'll give you another one. You can choose to pass that one. If you pass two times, you have to ha- answer the third question, no matter Valid. what. Pick wise. Um, Mary, you did our handy dandy random generator. What is our question? What's the worst time or place you've had to run to the restroom when you've been on the job? Oh my God. Okay, great. So um, when I was in high school, I was um, I was on the color guard, which is the dance team that in the fall is associated with the marching band. But people who are not in that world might not know that then in spring semester, color guard goes off and does its own thing. And it's much mm-hmm. more of a like traditional dance competition space. And um the season that was my sophomore year of high school, our uniforms were all white, white on white, everything, everything was white, the unitard, white, the leggings, white, the stupid little tool skirt, white, everything is white. And it comes to pass that on a competition day, I had my period and I had a tampon in. And also I was like, um, relatively new, I think, to wearing tampons. Like I had chosen that method like a little bit later. So we're on, right? And so our starting position involves me like I was kneeling down and I had to like very gracefully and very dramatically get up and kind of like fan my leg out. Um, so I did that. And as I made that first move, I immediately felt a front wedgie happen. Oh um, no. Yeah. And then I had to do the entire show that way. And I got through it. It was not my best show. Because I was like, I was so worried that if I moved wrong, I was going to start leaking. So I was like holding back a lot of my movements in a way that I didn't usually do. So we get off and I like, we end and we're off stage and I'm getting ready to like go rush to the bathroom. And then my coach like holds me back and she's like yelling at me for not having gone full out in competition. And finally I snap, I'm like, my... I think I said my tampon string is tucked up inside of my butt. Can I go? So I did. And then when I got back, she was mad at me for using vulgar language because she is a she was a great person. Um, but yeah, that is that is what happened there. <laughs> How old were you? Were you like I was 15? It was Aww. maybe it was right before I turned 16. Yeah. Oh, you were a baby. <laughs> That's so sad. Yeah, it wasn't oh my great. God. Yeah, I quit that dance team at the beginning of my senior year, and she got fired later that school year. So it was nice. Fine. It worked. Deserved. Yeah. 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 God. Aw. Mary, do you have yours? I have, I'm still thinking of one. Okay, I can get mine. So I'm sure there have been more than this because I tend to find myself in these situations a lot. The one that stands out is it was our first year of grad school, and our department has us take like a seminar class where it's mm-hmm. like, 
pretty much a space where they bring in guest speakers and where you're supposed to get to know your cohort and like bond of sorts, I guess. And my first year, I was still very much so on this trend of like dressing up more so than I do now, like, <laughs> like dressing up for school. And I remember I was wearing this really cute skirt, but it was like tight. And I had like, yep. and it was like wintertime. So I had like black tights underneath. So it's like underwear, black tights, skirt on top of that. So lots of compressioning happening. Mm-hmm. And I think this was like on the tail end of like me trying to convince my body that it wasn't lactose intolerant. And I think I had had a bad, uh, like a bad lunch or something like that. And so we were in the seminar class. I'm wearing all of this like tight compression stuff. And I'm also sitting down in these awful chairs at our department house, which like angle your body in a very weird way. And like halfway through the seminar, I, I, keep, I start kind of getting hot. And I'm like, God, oh my gosh, why am I so hot? And I start like fidgeting in my seat and I just can't get comfortable. I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm like, I couldn't listen to what anyone was saying. I started feeling very uncomfortable, but I'm also the type of person that hates standing up when other people are talking. Like I wait mm-hmm. for a break or I wait till the end. So I'm like, fuck, I really need to go. I really like need to go to the restroom. Like I need to just take this off just to like, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. And like, it was probably like they talked for probably 20 more minutes. I feel like I was on the verge of passing out. And like there's this going on. And then the other side of my brain is like, can anyone else see that I am very uncomfortable right now? Is anyone like looking at me like very self-conscious of everything? And then the third part of my brain is just like, you need to go to the restroom now. And finally, like break happened. And I just bolted for the restroom and like took everything off and was just like, I feel so much better. But I still had the second half of the seminar. And so I was like, I need to put everything back on. And so I did. And I went back. And the same shit happened where I'm just like, I was feeling 10 times more uncomfortable than I needed to be. And I feel like that is the instance where I was like, you're not doing this anymore. You're not dressing up your jeans and a nice shirt. And that's what you do because you can't do this shit anymore. (laughs) But uh, I remember that one because I kept like looking at Mary because I'm like, if Mary knows that something's wrong, she's going to ask me if I'm okay. If she hasn't asked me if I'm okay, which I'm assuming (laughs) means she can't tell that anything is wrong. (laughs) That was my my moment. Yeah. And I kept drinking milk. So it's okay. (laughs) Mary, you got yours? I literally can't think of one. (laughs) Like I, I can't. Because I was trying to think, like, okay, I I worked at a summer camp. There's got to be something there. Not really. What I kept thinking about was, like, what is the worst thing that's happened to you while you've been on the job? Yeah. And so I'm going to answer that question. Go for it. Because I always think back. I used to work at a daycare, and I used to work in the baby room. This was when I was an undergrad, and my advisor wanted to set up, like, a phone interview because I had applied, and she wanted to have a conversation. But I had thought we had been communicating in Central Time or Pacific Time, but I was in Wisconsin. She's in California. Somehow, like, timing gets messed up, and I'm at work in the baby room, mm-hmm. alone at work in the baby room. So I'm on the phone with her, and she's, like, asking me my research interests, asking me, like, why I applied to work with her, what programs I'm interested in, what I see myself doing, you know, classic interview questions. And while I'm on the phone with her, I'm holding, like, a baby here mm-hmm. and like kind of like have a baby on my knee rough like I'm just like how many babies can I hold because they're all a little colicky it's November mm-hmm. I'm on the phone with her and she's like can we get on zoom and I was like literally no <laughs> and then one of the babies starts crying and she's like are you fine and I was like at this point I'm a youngin my my brain not fully developed and so I'm like yeah I'm fine like that just must be some weird background noise and I don't know why I didn't just say like 
I'm at work. Can we reschedule? Like, <laughs> didn't think to do that. Instead, thought to manage all of the four babies. And I'm on the phone with a potential advisor. And I'm just like chronically anxious. And now like I have an authority complex. <laughs> and all of these things are like unfolding while I have babies and I'm sweaty. And then you got in. And then I got in. But I, I think like that. <laughs> what? I don't think you've ever told me that story. I haven't been like, I haven't kept that story from anybody. Except my advisor. Yeah, I just didn't but... think it ever came up. But Yeah. So I would say that's like maybe one of the worst things that's happened to me while I've been on the job. I nannied a lot, did a lot of childcare. So like, I definitely, definitely feel you. It's like yeah. a baby poops on you and you're like, this might as well happen. Yeah. 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 On that note, that's everything we got, I think. Right, Mary? I think so. Thank you for being our guest. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. A special thank you to our guests for sharing their expertise and their time. This podcast is brought to you by Bianca and Mary, founders and creators of the Brown Girl and the White Girl, the podcast. To learn more about future guests and episodes, tune into our social medias. You can follow us at BG and WG on Instagram and as a Brown Girl and a White Girl podcast on Facebook. If you have anyone you'd love to be featured on the podcast or topics that you want to be discussed, let us know at the link in our bio and episode description. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.